Good morning, church. It is so good to see you all again on this lovely Sunday morning. Right away, would like to apologize if accidentally my voice cracks. Apparently, I was a little bit too much into that Fresno State game yesterday, more than I thought I was when I woke up this morning with a, my voice gone. That being said, thank you again for your invitation. Thank you again for the opportunity to be here. My family sends their greetings. Sunday is a busy day for us, uh, so nothing personal against you. Just my wife already heard this sermon multiple times, so she decided that she will pass this time. Uh, please turn in the Gospel of Mark. We'll be once again in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 9 this morning. Today we'll be looking at verses 33 through 41 of Gospel of Mark chapter 9, but for the sake of context, I would like to start reading in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in a house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for, one, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for another opportunity to come before your holy word. Father, we come before your word because there is no one else where we can go. We come to your word because in your word is life. We come to your word because in your word is truth. Therefore, Father, I ask that you would use me as an instrument in your hand to accurately exposit the truth of the text before us today so that your name and your name alone would receive the glory, so that the hearts of those who do not know you yet would have their eyes open, their ears open, so that their heart of stone would be turned into a heart of flesh, so that they would see their need for a Savior. We ask this in your name. Amen. 
a preacher and two of his friends went deer hunting. It was a long day and not very successful hunt. Finally, towards the end of the day, a buck came right in front of the three friends. Out of excitement, all three of them shot the deer at the same time. As they came up to the deer, they tried to figure out who was the one that finally got the deer. The game warden was walking by and said, let me help you guys out. He examined the deer and he said, it was definitely the preacher. Confused, they were asking him, how did you figure that out? They said, the bullet went into one ear and came out the other. This sad reality seems to describe the instance of what's happening here with Jesus and his disciples. Beginning in chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark, time and time again, Jesus will teach and tell his disciples what must happen to him. In fact, the reason why I began reading to you in chapter 9 a little bit earlier, beginning in verse 30, is because once again, Jesus teaches his disciples and tells them that he will need to go to the cross where he will need to die. And one would think that this would be an occasion where the disciples would come around their rabbi and maybe embrace him and say, let's pray to the heavenly father that he would give you strength. But no, that is not the case. It seems like the teaching of Jesus about his need to die on the cross is going in one ear and coming out the other. The disciples are completely oblivious and instead they're having a completely different conversation of their own. While Jesus is telling them about what is to happen to him, they are worried about themselves and their own Needs And therefore, today we'll see this wonderful lesson on greatness that Jesus Christ gives his disciples. Those of you who follow in your notes, there's four points, there's four things that I would like to highlight to you from this passage today. First, we will see greatness disputed. Then we will see greatness defined. Then we'll see greatness displayed. And then we'll connect today by looking at greatness disconnected. So once again, greatness disputed, defined, displayed, and disconnected. So here we are thinking that the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ would come to their rabbi and ask him about what does he mean about dying and what does he mean that he must go to the cross and what does he mean that on the third day he will be resurrected no that is not the case instead they're having an argument about who is the greatest among them what's even more fascinating about this is that Jesus specifically asked them what they were talking about on the road from uh, on the road to Capernaum. Not that Jesus was confused or needed clarification, but rather his question was one designed to convict. Similar to what our God did in the Garden of, uh, Garden of Eden when he asked Adam and Eve, where are you? It is not as though God didn't know where they were, but rather his question was designed to begin the conviction process in their hearts. In the same way here, Jesus gathers his disciples and asks them, what did they talk about on the way to Capernaum? And of course, 
we see here that the disciples were silent. Luke 9.47 says, But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, Jesus knew exactly what they were talking about. He knew exactly what the topic of discussion was taking place. The disciples, probably humiliated and humbled by the topic of their discussion, were silent. One commentator says the silence of the disciples is a wordless confession of the fact that that which they were discussing is of worthless substance. They were arguing, you see, among themselves, who is the greatest among them? And in fact, not only was this a single argument, but what we see in the Greek here is that this was a continual argument. Those of you who study the Gospels know that this was not a single occasion where the disciples had an argument about who's the greatest, but this was a continual topic of discussion among the disciples to see who is the greatest among them. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, just a few chapters later, this same conversation will need to be broken up by Jesus once more. This was a strange conversation for a group of former fishermen to discuss. Because they, in essence, were acting as the Pharisees that they themselves despised. They were arguing about their rank and their status. They were trying to see who among them was better than the rest of them. Perhaps the three who went to the Mount of Transfiguration said, Hey, we were there. Guess who we saw? Did you guys go? No. Jesus didn't pick you. We must be greater than the rest of you. And so here are these fishermen whom Jesus has selected to be their, his disciples. And yet they are worried about their rank and their status. J.C. Ryle would go on to say, Who would have thought that a few fishermen and tax collectors could have been overcome by rivalry and desire for supremacy? Who would have expected that poor men who had given up everything for the Christ's sake would have been troubled by strife and dissension as the place and precedence which each one deserved? Yet so it is. While Jesus is pouring out his heart to his disciples that he must go to Golgotha and be killed there. Instead, the disciples are worried who is greater among them. While Jesus is telling them of his future humiliation, they are arguing about their own exaltation. They're trying to see who is the greatest among them. Brothers and sisters, before we move on from this point, it is easy for me and for us to be judgmental of the disciples' actions, but how often that is the case in our own life. Did you notice that when we strive for greatness, it often puts blinders on our eyes for the needs of others around us? Here, Jesus clearly told them what he's going through. And yet, all they're worried about is who is the greatest among them. How often in our own lives, when we care only about our own greatness and our own needs, 
we are ignorant and blind to the struggles and difficulties that our dear brothers and sisters all around us are facing. And so were the disciples, blind and ignorant to what the Lord Jesus Christ was teaching them, the truth of his message going in one ear and coming out the other. Brings us to the second point, greatness defined. I want you to see that it is humbling that Jesus actually continues to teach his disciples. If it were me, I would say, you know what? I've had enough with you. Time to select 12 new ones. You guys just failed the task. He would have been justified if he literally just took him out. He is pouring out his heart about the future, about the salvation of the world. And yet they're arguing who's the greatest. And yet look at the mercy and the grace displayed by our Savior to sit them down and to teach them to use this moment of their own pride and arrogance to teach them a valuable lesson about true biblical definition of what greatness should be. Mark 9.35, we read, And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. Jesus gives them a simple and yet very profound lesson on what biblical greatness is. If you want to be great, if you want to be first, learn to be last. Learn to be a servant. This was a countercultural idea on, in their day just as much as it is a countercultural idea in our day. This is the theme of that upside-down kingdom in which the Lord Jesus Christ was teaching and illustrating with his own life and ministry while he was here on this earth. A commentator goes on to explain, the world's idea of greatness is to rule, but Christian greatness consists in serving. The world's ambition is to receive honor and attention, but the desire of the Christian should be to give rather than to receive, and to attend on others rather than to be attended on. In short, the person who puts most effort into serving other people and is being useful in the present time is the greatest in the eyes of Jesus. Now, I need to pause here because sometimes we get the wrong notion that what Jesus is doing here in this passage is condemning greatness. Notice, not once does Jesus say you should not be great. Rather, he is not condemning greatness, but is redefining greatness, properly defining what greatness should look in the context of a believer. Look, Jesus doesn't say, stop seeking greatness. Rather, he says, if you truly want to be great, then be last. Serve instead of wanting to be served upon. If you want to be first, you see, Jesus doesn't say, stop trying to be first. He says, if you want to be first, here's what the Word of God says. Serve. Be last. Look for ways to be a servant rather than to be great in what you think 
greatness means. Jesus wants his disciples to be great in things that matter to God, not in things that matter to this world. He does not value rank or status. Rather, Jesus values humility and service. It is important to know that the Greek word used here for servant is diakonos. That's where we get our English word for deacon from. Deacons are called in the word of God to be servants, to serve. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, you want to be great in accordance to the word of God? Be a deacon. Be a servant. Be the one who is literally serving tables, if you will. Look for ways to serve one another rather than argue who's the greatest. Serve me. Look at me. Look at my rank and status. That is not the biblical definition. In fact, one chapter later in the Gospel of Mark, here's what Jesus would continue to teach on this subject. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, diakonos again. And whoever would be the first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ defined true meaning of greatness through his own life and ministry on this earth. Jesus did not come to this earth to be served and to be ruler over all, but he came to serve those who didn't deserve to be served. He humbled himself to the point of death. He laid down his life for those who did not deserve it. Jesus illustrated himself. Son of man came not to be served, but to serve. How often Jesus would show that time and time again in his ministry? While his disciples are arguing who's the greatest, he would take a towel and a, and a pitcher or a, a jar of water and begin washing their feet. A task which was designed for the lowest of servants. To touch one's dirty feet was to be considered the lowest task that anyone could do in that day. And yet Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, would take a towel and a jar of water and begin to wash the feet of those who are arguing who's the greatest among them. Jesus redefined and illustrated the true meaning of greatness. Brothers and sisters, do you want to be great? Do you want to be first in the context of the Word of God, in the biblical definition of greatness? Learn to serve. Learn to take a towel, a jar of water, and to wash the feet. Be quick to find ways to help and serve those around you rather than sitting around and arguing who is the greatest among you. This brings us to the third point, greatness displayed. Jesus, being a great teacher, would not leave his lesson without an illustration. And so he proceeds by calling a child to himself. And we see here in our text that 
Jesus would, in that house in which they were, he called a child to himself, and then taking, uh, put the child in their midst, and then embraced the child and said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. What is Jesus doing here? What is the significance of this illustration, of this uh, visual teaching aid of bringing a child in their midst while he's talking to the group of his disciples, embracing the child, and then telling them that this child is a visual illustration of what he's trying to teach. This is especially challenging for us in our Western society to appreciate this because our understanding of children is so far removed from the Jewish and the Roman understanding of who children were and how they were to behave. You see, we live in a child-centric culture even with all its faults. Think about it for the moment. And this is not just in the church context, but in general in our society. Families who often move, what is the first thing that they look for in around the house that they're looking to purchase? Does it have good schools? Is it a good school district for my children? We often examine, is this a good neighborhood for our children to live in? Will there be safe there? Is there enough yard space for them to run around and to waste and exhaust their energy? We look at the type of the house. If it was just me and my wife, two bedrooms is plenty for us. In fact, one bedroom would suffice. No, two would be better. <laughs> but with children, all of a sudden, you're realizing, okay, we have boys, we have girls, we probably should separate, even those two girls need to be separated. And so all of a sudden, our children influence our decision-making and are even decide for us where we go, what house we purchase, and so on. Have you considered that our children are often the ultimate decision makers for what we buy? Think about it. Marketologists, those who work in this field, they know that children influence the buying power and the buying decision of parents. Think about the season that we're entering here with Christmas. We already received a uh, something from Amazon and from Target uh, with a buying guide that, of course, my children already circled and highlighted the things that they want. Think about it, parents. If you went to Costco by yourself without children and to Costco with your children, would your shopping cart look different? Yes, because often our children influence and decide the things that we do. What about vacation? Have you considered that often we as parents go to places not because we enjoy them, but only for the sake of our children? We go to Disneyland not because we love Disneyland so much, but just because our children would enjoy the time there, and so on and so on. What about food? 
Often, most of you today after church, well, you guys are having potluck, that's uh, wonderful, but how often we make our decisions, not because we really want to eat a McDonald's, but because it's the quickest and they have a Happy Meal toy that will satisfy our child. What about the cars that we drive? Do you really like the look of the minivan? Or is it merely a necessity? And, And then the scariest one of all, How many parents decide what church they're going to go to because of what kind of programs that church offers for their children and for their youth? Now, I say this to you and spend a long time on this illustration so that you would understand that that was the very opposite in the Jewish and Roman culture. Children had no say about what they're eating tonight. Children had no say which house they were to live in. Children had no say about the matters of the household. Children were to be seen and not heard. They were on the lowest scale of societal influence in that day. Children, to say it cruelly, did not matter. And in fact, in times of poverty, a lot of families, especially if it was not a male child, would either kill the children or sell them into slavery just to make ends meet. James Edwards in his commentary says, Societies with high infant morality rates and great demand for human labor could not afford to be sentimental about infants and youth. In Judaism, children and women were largely auxiliary members of society whose connection to the social mainstream depended on men, either as fathers or husbands. And so I say all this to you to help you understand what Jesus is doing here with his illustration. When he brings in a child in the midst of a grown-up conversation where he is rebuking his disciples, and then he embraces this child, this was shocking. Because Jesus just brought in the lowest member of society to illustrate a point, and he brought that child right in front of his disciples. Just a few verses later in chapter 10, the disciples will get mad when parents will be bringing children to Jesus. Here, Jesus himself is bringing the child in the midst of their rebuke to illustrate a point and to teach his disciples. And he says in verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. See, what Jesus is doing here. Is he saying, you want to be great? Serve. Be a servant. Serve the least of these. And then Jesus brings the least of these right in front of them. And he says, serve this child. How often we who want to be great use people in our society as stepping stones to reach that next great scale or that great next pay cut or that great next step of greatness and jesus says you want to be great in the kingdom of god serve those who have no influence 
It's one thing if uh, Derek Carr or Elon Musk showed up at the church today, how quickly we would jump out of our seat and go wanting to meet and greet him and to help him and maybe invite him to, to lunch afterwards, knowing that this is a great person and my friendship with a great person and maybe even a picture afterwards, a selfie that I can show my friends, look, I served a great person today. And maybe I'll even get something out of this if I become best friends with so-and-so. But how many of us are quick to serve children? How many of us are quick to serve those who are insignificant? Those who cannot give you anything in return? In fact, do you know the biblical definition of hospitality? The Greek word is philo xenos, which means Philo, you should know, is friend or where we get Philadelphia from, a love or a friendship. And Xenos is stranger, a friend of strangers. We as Christians are called to be hospitable. One of the texts we read today was from 1 Peter. Be hospitable without grumbling. We are to show love and care for strangers. And you know why we shouldn't grumble? Because showing love and care for those that don't give you anything in return and often actually make things even worse for you is a difficult task. And Jesus says, you want to be great? Serve those that can't give you anything in return. Lay down your life for those who are worthless based on our society and our standards. Wasn't this also illustrated by what Jesus did? Brothers and sisters, do you really think that Jesus died for us because we could offer him something that he doesn't have? Do you really think that Jesus laid down his life because we were so precious and we just filled that, that whole sh uh, shape in his heart? No. He illustrated that he died for the sinners, those who were at enmity with him. And that's why Jesus is eternally great, eternally magnificent, because he laid down his life for sinners. James Edwards goes on to tell us, the child is not used here as often as supposed as an example of humility, but as an example of the little and insignificant ones whom followers of Jesus are to receive. Disciples are thus not to be like children, but to be like Jesus who embraces them. It is Jesus, not the child, who here demonstrates what it means to be servant of all. Too often this passage gets confused with the other passage where Jesus tells them to be like children. This is not what Jesus teaches here. He says, you want to be great? Serve the insignificant ones. Embrace those that in their day in society were considered the least of them. Those who were considered insignificant, those who were considered of no value and of no benefit. How often Jesus illustrated that in his life? While the Pharisees wanted to hang out with those of higher rank, Jesus would go hang out with a Samaritan woman. While the Pharisees wanted to be around those who can raise their rank and status in the community, Jesus would go and be among those who had leprosy or those who are considered untouchables in their day because they would ruin their, their so-called Jewish laws of purification. And therefore, Jesus, time and time again, illustrated that true greatness is seen when you serve those who do not deserve to be served. 
And so here Jesus says we are to show honor, we are to show hospitality to those who do not deserve it. Jesus is saying that those who serve and receive honor the least of those who do not let him as well, for they are uh, for uh, the least of those do not that to him as well as for his creation. We are to serve his creation. We are to serve those that Jesus has called us to serve. I'm going to read you a passage. In fact, if you want to open, because it's a lengthy passage, but it clearly illustrates what Jesus is teaching here in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 40. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Brothers and sisters, the greatness in accordance to the word of God is not greatness that seeks its own, but is the one that is ready to lay down its life for those around us. And not just because we can get something in return, but especially for those that have nothing to offer you in return. That is the lesson that Jesus is teaching his disciples. That is the lesson that he's illustrating by bringing a child right in front of them. That brings us to the last and final point in your notes, greatness disconnected. At this point, you would think that after such humbling rebuke and after such humbling lesson, the disciples would all just fall on their knees in ashes and sackcloth and repented in front of Jesus. But that is not the case. Because once again, the message goes in one ear and it came out the other. In verse 38, John begins to speak. This is unique on many levels because this is the only time John speaks in the Gospel of Mark. And perhaps if John knew that that would be the only words recorded, he would not say what he had said. Look what John says instead. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Parents, if, if you are familiar with discipline and children, you know what John is doing here. Have you ever tried to discipline one of your children, and instead of them repenting in ashes, uh, ashes and sackcloth, they said, but Johnny uh, was doing this at lunch today. And all of a sudden, it's a redirection of attention from the topic at hand to Johnny out there, who did something wrong. Here John completely misunderstands the lesson illustrated to Jesus, and in fact, he just keeps digging himself in a larger hole. But Jesus said, do not stop him, 
For one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. You see, what John is doing here is he's saying, Jesus, there was an instance here where there was someone else casting out demons. And look at the problem that John has with this. His problem is not that they were casting out demons or whether they were successful or not. John's problem is that they did not want to follow them they did not want to be part of us. Look what he says here. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. John is not even saying because he wasn't following you, Lord. John is not even saying that he was doing it incorrectly. But the reason we tried to stop him is because he's not following us. He's not part of our clique. He's not part of our group. This is especially fascinating because just a few verses earlier in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 9, verse 18, I don't know if you remember this, the disciples went out and they were unsuccessful in casting out a demon, an unclean spirit. And in verse 18, uh, uh, the father of a son with un unclean spirit asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able so perhaps it was actually a matter of jealousy by John that he, the disciples, were not able to do this, but this certain person who was not even part of their clique, not even part of their group, is successfully casting out demons. John completely redirects the discussion in a different direction. You see, it seems to be an issue of jealousy and envy. Our earthly desire for greatness. Once again, an earthly desire, not a biblical desire, but an earthly desire for greatness and status often produces division and envy even among those who serve on the same side. Remember how I told you this was not the only time the disciples argued about greatness? In fact, we will see later on in chapter 10, the disciples even get their mommy involved on the topic of greatness. And do you know what happened when the sons of thunder got their mommy involved? Do you know how that influenced and that, how that affected the dynamics between other disciples? We read in Mark 10, 41, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Brothers and sisters, an earthly desire for greatness where we do not seek to serve, but rather seek to build ourselves up, often divides the church, divides those who seek to serve the Lord. And this was a perfect illustration. Here is John, after Jesus is rebuking them for their arguments about greatness, is worried more about someone who's not part of the clique doing something successfully that John was not able to do a few verses ago. And then in just a couple more verses, he'll be bringing his mom and his brother to ask Jesus to sit on the right and the left side of him in glory. Once again, we're so quick sometimes to judge and condemn these disciples, but how often is that also the case for us? But sisters, this is a valuable lesson and a convicting one, especially in the context of churches. 
So often we can get very cliquish in our desire for greatness where we do get jealous and envious of other churches in our community doing things for the Lord. Rather than looking to serve and lay down our life ourselves, we are worried about what others are doing and that they're not part of our club and how come the Lord is blessing them if they're not like us. Apostle Paul illustrated that wonderfully when he was in prison. Philippians 1, 15 through 18, there Paul would write, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The later do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Here is John worried about those who are not part of their clique doing the Lord's work. Jesus is saying, if they're casting out demons, it's not because they're so good, but because the Father has given them authority. And in the same way here, Paul is saying, you know what, Paul's in prison. And here's these people with wrong ambitions, taking advantage of Paul being in prison, preaching the gospel. Some for right reasons, some for wrong reasons. And instead of writing letters and, and tell them, hey, get off my turf. Don't touch that neighborhood. Don't touch that area. That was mine. Paul is rejoicing that the gospel message is proclaimed. You know why? Because Paul understood the biblical definition of greatness. It was not about turf and status and rank. Biblical definition was about serving those who do not know, those who are the lowest, those who are not able to give you anything in return. And so when he heard that the gospel message was being proclaimed, even by those who are doing it with their own ambition, he is rejoicing rather than throwing a pity party like the disciple John is doing here. But sisters, that is the lesson here for us that the Lord Jesus Christ has so clearly illustrated to his disciples. Jesus Christ is that ultimate display for us of biblical definition of greatness. The one who laid down his life, not because we could have offered him something that he doesn't already have, but because he laid down our life, obeying his father, submitting to his will, because that is ultimate greatness, is to serve those the least among us. I pray that this truth will encourage and convict us as well. May we look for opportunities to serve rather than to be served. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this convicting truth taught by our Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples and as well to us today as well. Father, forgive us that often we are so blind to our own interests and only our own desires, that we are overlooking the needs and the difficulties and challenges of those around us. Father, I pray that Grace Presbyterian, as well as Highview Bible Church and other believers in our community would be quick to serve and would do so without jealousy and envy of other brothers and sisters in our community. But may we be quick to lay down our life, to give away our time, energy, and resource uh, 
to those who do not know you, to those who have not heard the gospel message, to those who still need you. May we humble ourselves, looking to you as the ultimate example of greatness, looking to the cross and what you have accomplished there on our behalf. We ask this in your name. Amen.